Chapter 9, An Exchange of Tragedies Traveling home in the summer of 1945 was a rather arduous, unpleasant journey in war-torn, bombed-out, chaotic Central Europe. I was very anxious about what I might find when I got home, but I hoped... I kept telling myself over and over that if I had survived, then surely all my older and smarter siblings would have too. We were driven to the border of Czechoslovakia in a military trucks along with quite a few others who were going back to their homes. I have scant memory of the entire trip, probably because I was traumatized and I later relied on Shari and Edith to recall this period. I know we traveled through Czechoslovakia on a train for a while. Then we were sidetracked while more important trains went through, some with American or Soviet soldiers. Victorious, liberators, or occupiers, depending on one's outlook. We saw as the train finally moved again lots of buildings in ruins. I can't recall how we obtained food. The Americans must have supplied us with some check money. Sadly, Shari and Edith are no longer among the living to further jog my memory about this journey. Finally, we arrived in Budapest. By this time, the Jewish community there was well organized. They had been liberated by the Soviet army a number of months earlier, in January and February 1945. A Jewish committee registered us, and they wanted to know who I was, where I came from, and then where did I want to go. They asked Edith and Shari the same questions. I told them that I wanted to go back to Debrecen, so they telephoned an office there and gave them our names. Debrecen's Jewish community was also organized by then. We stayed in Budapest for two or three days and met up with my cousins Olga and Jano Mandel, who were very nice to us. We slept in group homes for those few days and then we were put on a train to Debrecen. Needless to say, it was a very anxious trip from Budapest to Debrecen. We arrived at the station, and of course, nobody was waiting for me or for the Fike sisters. Since we lived in different parts of the city, my camp sisters and I had to part ways. We cried and hugged. It was difficult to say goodbye. As I walked to my old house from the station alone, my heart was heavy, loaded with terrible memories and dreadful knowledge. And yet, it was also hopeful. Walking on the well-known Seichini Utsa on which I had walked with friends almost daily, I recalled how much I used to enjoy the abundance of acacia trees that exuded a delicate perfume. Now it seemed desolate and surreal, like it had been eons since I was here the last time. I had experienced many lifetimes between then and now, and here I was, 
walking home from hell on earth. I had wished for and dreamed of this moment so many times while languishing in the dust of Birkenau. Finally, I turned the corner onto my street, Nyugati Utsa. It also seemed old, rundown, and ugly, uninviting. Suddenly, as I looked up, I saw two men walking towards me. As we got closer, I recognized Lotzi, the youngest of my three brothers, and our cousin, Erno Klein. It was a joy and relief to see them. I was no longer alone. Lotzi looked gaunt and pale. He had just recovered from typhus, he told me. Erne was in good condition. They had both returned to Debrecen from forced labor battalions a while before I returned to Hungary, and they were living in our old house. We hugged and cried right there on the street. Then we walked back to the place that had been our home. We reached Nyugati Utsa 34 and that large, heavy iron door I remembered so well, then into the courtyard that looked terribly neglected and finally our dwelling. Everything seemed so very strange. Our furniture was all gone and nothing was cozy or familiar. Yet, here is where I broke down and cried uncontrollably. It was here where the enormity of the Holocaust dawned on me. Not in the camps, where the priority was just survival. Not in the refugee camp, where getting back to normalcy feeling like a human being again occupied my life. It was here where my colossal losses stared me in the face, where my future looked utterly sad and bleak. In fact, I saw no future. At this moment, I faced the inevitable and difficult questions and struggled to answer them. Our understanding of the historical facts slowly unfolded. As fate had it, Debrecen, from where we had been deported on June 29, 1944, was liberated by the Soviet army on October 19, 1944, a mere three and a half months between survival and mass murder. About half of the 13,000 Jews in Debrecen ghettos had been deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau and the other half to Strasshof, Austria. They turned out to be the lucky ones. While they too endured hardships, hunger, and plenty of brutality, they never faced the lethal gas chambers and the other deadly processes of the death camps, which were specially built for mass annihilation of Jews and others. Thankfully, most of those deported to Austria remained alive. In some cases, entire families were intact and had been able to get back to Hungary almost immediately at the war's end. We learned that this group from Debrecen was part of the blood for trucks negotiations between the Jewish leadership of Hungary, the mayor of Vienna, and Eichmann, 
who agreed to allow approximately 20,000 Hungarian Jews to be sent to Austria to fill labor needs there in exchange for money and valuables. Once back, these survivors were able to establish a well-functioning Jewish community and started helping others who were returning. When I returned home, it seemed to me that many in Debrecen still did not know about Auschwitz-Birkenau and the other death camps. All they knew was what the Jews who had survived in Austrian captivity had told them. When the Auschwitz-Birkenau survivors started trickling back to Debrecen, even my relatives who had been in forced labor battalions were totally ignorant of the facts that there had been two very different deportations destinations. They thought all Jews from Debrecen had been deported to Austria. Then I came along, one of the first to return from the death camps and one of the few survivors. I told Lotzi about how our mother and father, our sister-in-law Magda and our infant nephew Peter were all murdered in the gas chambers of Birkenau, most likely shortly after our arrival and the first elections. Don't wait for them, Lotzi. They will never come back, I said. Three male cousins, Miklos Erdenfeld and Shimi and Jenny Kohn, wanted to know about their wives and young daughters. I was the bearer of devastating news that their beloved wives and young daughters had all been murdered in the gas chambers of Birkenau. They were shocked. Gas chambers? They didn't believe me. They thought I was raving mad. I also explained what selections meant in a death camp and how eventually we four sisters, Avi, Clary, Bershke, and I, were separated in two stages and that I had no idea where they might be or even if they were alive. Lotzi didn't believe me. Still, he felt devastated. I frequently broke into uncontrollable crying, weighed down by all the agonizing memories and the irreversible reality of my great losses. I had to bottle up all my nightmarish memories. Nobody wanted to hear such incredible, horrible, unbelievable stories. Those were emotionally heavy and difficult days and weeks for me, and it was hard for others to fathom what I was going through or what had happened. There was nowhere to turn for solace. The unprecedented, brutal facts about what had happened surfaced slowly and were released by the media over the next decade. In communist countries like Hungary, the process was even slower. The prominence of Jewish victims was underplayed, and the stories about the victims of fascists in Budapest and its vicinity were emphasized. The scope and enormity of the industrial-style mass murder didn't become well-known worldwide until the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem which began on April 11, 1961. That late. 
Until then, few knew the extent of this genocide or the Hurban destruction, as Jews referred to it until the word Holocaust was popularized in the 1950s and 1960s. It took 50 years for the Hungarian government to create a Holocaust memorial and museum in Budapest in 2004. Lotz's story of survival surfaced slowly as we spent more time together. He and some of my cousins had been in different forced labor battalions with the Hungarian army and had somehow survived. Lotz's liberation by the Soviet Red Army in Austria was nothing short of a miracle. In Lotz's words, a mere three minutes had made the difference between life and death. Sick with typhus, he and the others in the unit had been abandoned by their Hungarian fascist guards somewhere in Austria. They found an empty schoolroom and lay down on the floor to rest. Suddenly, a Waffen-SS soldier arrived on motorcycle, and surmising from the condition they were in that they were Jews, he took out his gun to shoot them. At that moment, his comrade roared in on a motorcycle, breathless and yelling in German, Fritz! Komm doch schnell, die Russen sind da. Fritz, come fast, the Russians are here. And they both fled, not having time to kill anyone. The Soviet military helped Lotzi and his group get healthy and send them home once they were strong enough to walk. However... When they finally crossed into Hungary, they were stopped by Soviet or Ukrainian military police and told to identify themselves. The police were looking for Aerocross fascists who were trying to escape justice. Nobody in the group had ID cards, so they were arrested as members of the Aerocross and put in an internment camp together with fascists whom the Soviet military planned to send to Siberia. Well, needless to say, the Jewish men did not want to end up in Siberia. They were not guilty of anything. They were the victims. Every day, a few of them pleaded with the military officials to let them go free. Luckily, one day the chief military official was replaced and the new one was a Russian Jew who listened to their plea, made sure they were really Jewish, and let them go free. It would have been a terrible fiasco if Lotzi and the others had ended up in Siberia. Lotzi had terribly sad news for me regarding my two oldest brothers, Yeno and Miklos. He heard that Miklos had been killed at Voronezh, where there was a major military battle and thousands of Hungarian and Soviet troops were slaughtered, though Miklos was there as a slave laborer, not as a combatant. And Yenő was murdered by Hungarian officers in Doroshitz. The Hungarians had marched into Ukraine as allies of Nazi Germany, 
and the Jewish slaves had to go along with the army. Jews were sent to the front lines in case there were minefields. They were the canaries in the coal mine, the cannon fodder. In addition, they were brutally treated by this particular division, the Hungarian Second Army. This is what we learned, and it was later validated by the Hungarian government. As the Hungarian Second Army was retreating from the Soviets, about 400 Jewish slaves got sick with typhoid fever. They were quarantined in a makeshift hospital in the town of Doroshitz. Instead of taking these sick men with them, the officers burned down the hospital with the Jewish men in it. It was a massacre. A few men managed to crawl out unnoticed and were witnesses to what happened. My oldest brother was among those murdered. There were several Weissenberg cousins and numerous other Jews from Debrecen who were in that division and perished. Only a few of my cousins returned from the Hungarian slave labor battalions. My welcome home, it seems, was the exchange of utterly tragic stories. The bleak picture unfolded. Our parents, at least some of our siblings, our little nephew Peter Magda, and numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins had all been murdered one way or another. We were told that Yenu had known that he had a son but never had the chance to hold him. Each of these relatives was murdered in a particular hell of the Holocaust, but there was still hope for our three sisters that they were alive somewhere in Europe since there was no definitive news about them. I told Lotzi what I knew about what had happened to them while we were still in Auschwitz, I guess that Avi and Clary had been taken somewhere else, but I didn't know where Bushke ended up because she was still in Birkenau when I was taken away. At home, we just waited and constantly checked the lists of survivors. Lotzi and two of my cousins had been living in our home for a while by now and had created a new family unit. We had the basic necessity from the Jewish community's furniture bank, an abandoned furniture store. So there were beds, tables, and chairs, though none of the furniture matched, and it didn't feel like ours. But we were all happy to be alive and have some kind of a home. By the time I returned to Debrecen in early August 1945, the Jewish high school I had once attended no longer existed. It had been combined with a non-denominational state high school. The school board allowed the few of us who returned to complete the grade we missed if we could finish by the end of September. Continuing our education was important, and so I went back to school. 
I was going on 17 and it was a good distraction from wrestling with my agonizing memories and traumatic experiences. There I rejoined a couple of my former classmates Anse and Agi and a few others who had survived in Austria with their entire families intact, ignorant of all my terrible experiences. We were all trying to make up for the missing year. I still have documentation that shows that I finished one grade in six weeks. Uh, Admittedly, the teachers were very lenient in their expectations. Going back to school, I had some kind of life, though not much of one. I didn't have many friends from the old days because most of them had died in Auschwitz. Anzi and Agi moved to Budapest, and so did Edith and Shari to join their brothers there. As the new school year started, I enrolled in my last year of high school. I think it was November or December of 1945 when a young lady knocked on our door and asked, Is there anybody from the Weissenberg family alive here? Yes, we are, Lotzi answered. Then she said, here, and handed us a small piece of paper. On it was just a name, Weissenberg A.V., and our address in my sister's handwriting. This most welcome stranger then told us that A.V. was alive. They had been liberated together, Avi was still recovering, and after being in the hospital for a long time, she was now convalescing in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp in Germany. The young lady explained that when she had decided to head back to Transylvania via Debrecen, Avi begged her to look up this address and tell whoever she found that she was alive and where she was. It was very kind of her to stop and look us up. She gave us the most welcome, happy news. Now we were three. But we had not yet heard any news of Bershke and Clary. At that time, my brother had connection with the Zionist underground the Bricha, which had a mission to help survivors get to British-mandate Palestine. Travel in Europe was still very chaotic and illegal unless you had official papers. So my brother signed up with the Bricha, but he didn't tell them that he was not going to Palestine. He told them that he first wanted to get to his sister and only after that go to Palestine. When Lotzi finally got to Bergen-Belsen and joined A.V., He told her that he had come to take her back to Debrecen, but she did not want to leave. She was too weak to travel, and she had a boyfriend. She was a beautiful girl, 20 years old by then. As far as she had known, she was alone, and she had not searched for family except for that note she sent to Debrecen with a friend. When my brother told her that I was alive and at home, she thought he was lying. 
What are you talking about? Yutkova's guest in Birkenau. She's not alive. You are wrong. She's at home, Lotse assured her. Still, Avi didn't want to come home. She said that she didn't want to see Hungary ever again. I think it was also because she had a boyfriend who looked after her very nicely. He was a very good-looking man from Riga, Latvia, who had lost his wife and two children in the Holocaust. He was at least 10 years older than Avi, around 30 years old. In the DP camps, there were many single people who had lost all their family. They were lonely and yearning for companionship, to belong to someone, to anyone. Many marriages took place between lonely people who would not have been a match under normal circumstances. Weddings, marriages, and then, of course, came the children in a remarkable renewal of family life. Renewal of life itself. Lotzi returned from Germany without Avi. He told me all sorts of fairy tales about what would happen if we went back to Germany. I told him that I wanted to matriculate first. No, he said, we are not waiting. We will go back to Germany, and in six months' time we will have a chance to leave Europe. We'll settle down somewhere else. I told him that I wasn't going. But he was bugging me, bugging me, bugging me. He won.